We're gonna be on pages 34 and 35 in your packet, so go ahead and flip there. And uh, while you're working your way there, my name's Mike Kreider. I've been working on staff with Disciple Makers for about four and a half years now. And uh, let me tell you guys about the day that I tried to run a half marathon with almost zero training. Uh, It was during COVID, I took up distance running as a hobby, and I developed the dream of running a marathon someday during COVID, 26.2 miles, it was my dream. So about three weeks after I developed this hobby and started running, I woke up one morning and I said to myself, you know, I've been doing this for a little while now. I think I'm ready to do a half marathon, 13.1 miles. So I set out and here's what happened. About 11 miles in, I got hit with this sudden stabbing pain in my stomach that I literally could not push through. I found out you're supposed to give nutrients to your body before and during a run of that kind of a distance, neither of which I had been doing. So I stopped running and instantly my calf muscles seized up and cramped and my Achilles tendon felt like it was going to snap. I gave myself Achilles tendonitis that day and I've been dealing with it ever since. See, you're supposed to wear the right running shoes and practice your running form, neither of which I had been doing. And leading up to this run, I had increased my mileage way too fast, which is the number one way to get injured. And that day, in my arrogance and in my foolishness, I learned something that pertains just as much to distance running as it does to the Christian life. Going the distance is not as easy as we think. And I suspect that if you've chosen to attend this breakout, you would affirm that. Going the distance in the Christian life is harder than we often think. We encounter passivity in our faith or our evangelism or our spiritual growth, and we grow weary or discouraged, whether it's internal issues or even external issues of what life throws at us. We wrestle with disappointment or frustration as other people don't respond to the gospel as we hoped they would as we invest in them. Maybe you've borne some kind of mistreatment for following Jesus in your social circles or in your classes. We wrestle with seasons of unforeseen suffering or doubt or despair. Friends, all of these things pile up and and perseverance in the Christian life, it can be exhausting at times. I feel it too. Now the good news is that our God knows this and he has provided us with everything we need in order to press on and flourish in the Christian life. In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to the topic of Christian perseverance and that book is called the book of Hebrews. It's become a close companion of mine in recent months and years and I hope it will for you as well. See, the book of Hebrews was written for a particular group of Christians who were facing societal pressures of a culture that did not like or support their faith in Jesus. They were in desperate need of perseverance through their sufferings, through their sins, and through their slothfulness. And and based on my reading of the book of Hebrews, based on my personal study, here's how I would propose the author defines Christian perseverance. This will be our functional definition for the breakout. Here's how I think the the author of Hebrews defines Christian perseverance. Perseverance is the lifelong commitment of obedient faith in Jesus Christ. Perseverance is the lifelong commitment of obedient faith in Jesus Christ. 
We'll consider that as we explore our passage and our topic today. But for now, let me pray and read our passage. It's printed there in your packets. And then we'll consider three things in our text that help us press on from this passage. The invitation, the warning, and the promise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we we pray that in these mundane moments that we share together, you would do something supernatural by the work of your spirit, by the power of your word in our hearing. Would you help us to press on and persevere in our faith? Father, we are exhausted by various things right now, whether it is physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. God, you know exactly where each individual is at in this room. We pray that you would minister to them as they need. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. The author writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without witness on the evidence of two or three witnesses, without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Point one, the invitation. The invitation. Now the opening word of our text, therefore, 
is marking an enormous transition in the book of Hebrews where the author is concluding multiple chapters of high theology about Jesus and he's now beginning to drop the full force of it onto his audience in application. And he distills all of that theology down into this simple message. Remember what you have. Remember what you have. This is your first subpoint on your outlines. Notice in the text, we have two repetitions of since we have, verse 19 and verse 21. We'll take them in order. Verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. See, the word confidence implies that we don't merely have access to God, We don't merely have a God who tolerates or puts up with us approaching him. We have a God who gives us a standing invitation into relationship with himself. It is as though Jesus Christ has purchased by his blood a house key to the throne room of God and God is expecting our company. He wants us to stop by. He wants to spend time with us. In fact, the the idea of confidence that we have toward God shows up in this passage four times. And I just wanna show them to you. The first one is there in verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places. The second one is there in verse 22. Let us draw near in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And all the way down in verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. And notice what that confidence that we have toward God is rooted in. Verse 19, we have confidence by the blood of Jesus. Verse 21 says, since we have a great priest, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for... He who promised is faithful. Friends, think of how this helps us persevere. See, as God's people, we have tremendous confidence in our relationship with God, rooted in his faithfulness to come through on his promises and the finished work of Christ which secures those promises for us. That's where our confidence in the journey of this Christian life comes from. It comes from outside of ourselves, not inside of ourselves. We have confidence in God and the performance of Christ. That helps us persevere. But the author takes it a step further in verse 21 when he says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. You see, a priest stands between two separate parties, God and mankind, And he connects them, brings them together by removing whatever stands between them. Uh, Hebrews 2, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, which is printed in your packets, sheds a bit more light on this for us. It says, therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. 
See, as our great priest, Jesus Christ has removed every trace of separation between us and God by dealing with and forgiving all of our sins. And now Jesus is perfectly suited to help you and I through the temptations and trials of this life. And that's because Jesus has already overcome every one of them through the course of his own life. So the author has taken multiple chapters of high theology and distilled it down into this. Brother or sister, remember what you have. Remember what you have. In Christ, you have a high priest who is evenly matched for the desperation of whatever circumstances you could find yourself in, who knows firsthand all the temptations and trials of this life. And in him, you have confident access to God through him. That most precious and blessed relationship in all the cosmos has been restored for you and I by the costly sacrifice of Jesus Christ our high priest. Now, before we consider how this helps us persevere, here's why this was so important for the first readers to remember what they have so that they could persevere. You see, the first readers had converted to Christ out of a Jewish background. And so they no longer had all the bells and whistles of the Jewish faith. The temple in Jerusalem, which was a marvel of the ancient world or the, the sights and smells and sounds and sensations of the sacrificial system of worship. All of that was gone for them. And so think of it, their relationship with God, which at one point could be perceived by all five senses, was now all by faith in the invisible, intangible hope of Christ, their great priest. But at the same time, their faith in those unseen realities was being tested and challenged by all sorts of tangible, palpable attacks and problems coming at them. Our text even mentions at the end in verses 32 and 30 through 34, public shame and plundering of property. So here's the picture. Their persecutions and problems had become so real to them while at the same time their relationship with God and their confidence in those unseen realities of their high priest were becoming less real to them. Their sufferings were pushing down upon them and so their confidence in Jesus Christ was diminishing. So here comes the writer and he shifts their eyes off of what they can see onto what they can't see. The, the writer is coming along and he's saying, we need to shift your focus off of what's happening to you and onto what's happening for you. That's what the writer is doing. He's saying, remember what you have. Now here's how this helps us persevere. Brothers and sisters, perseverance is walking by faith, not by sight. It's walking by faith, not by sight. The writer of Hebrews is breaking us out of our tunnel vision and saying, your heavenly priest needs to become more real to you than your earthly problems. That your acceptance with God must loom larger in your mind than your rejection by the world. That all you have gained in Christ must exceed in your mind all that you've lost for Christ, that your access to God 
must be a living reality in your heart more than your apathy toward God. Friends, walking by faith doesn't immediately solve all of our problems in this life, nor does it diminish the pain or the perplexity which we face, but it changes us. It reminds us that we have a great priest who presides over every one of our problems, who provides access all along the way, and that enables us to press on by faith in him. It doesn't matter our circumstances. It doesn't matter how we're feeling about them. We have a priest presiding over them, providing the access of God for us right now. Earlier, we said that Christian perseverance is the lifelong commitment of obedient faith in Jesus Christ. Well, for the author of Hebrews, perseverance is a posture of faith in all that we possess in Christ. That's what he's saying. It's, it's something that your shifting emotions and experiences and circumstances can never change. Perseverance is walking by faith, not by sight. Second way that this helps us is that perseverance is not primarily something we do. It's primarily something that Jesus Christ is doing and which we receive from him. See, not only did Jesus Christ already persevere through his life and death to save us from our sins, but friends, do you know that right now, Jesus Christ is still persevering as our high priest to connect us to God, and he will never stop persevering in that work until he brings us home to God. And so from start to finish, the engine of Christian perseverance is not your performance, it's Christ's performance on your behalf. Do we have a role to play in our perseverance? Absolutely, please don't mishear me. But our role is only in response to all that we receive, all that we possess, all that we've been given in Christ. So rather than looking inward for our perseverance, brothers and sisters, let's look upward. Now, I don't know all the complexities of your present circumstances or what's going on in your life right now that you need to persevere through. It could be sorrow or suffering or sin. It could be passivity or persecution for your faith. But I assure you, at least part of God's good design for your situation right now is to make Jesus Christ your great priest and all his vast benefits far more real to you. God is laboring to shift your focus from all of your own resources, your own strength, your own abilities, and your very own self so that you would newly discover and receive every last one of those things in Jesus Christ, your high priest, and press on in him. In other words, God is working to help us remember what we have. And in light of that, in light of that, says the author, persevere in what you do. This is your second subpoint under point one. Remember what you have and persevere in what you do. Now, in, in the verses that follow, we get three imperatives that all begin with let us. 
Now, this is kind of the role that we play in our own perseverance now. And I wanna read them again in your hearing, verses 22 to 25. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the author has seemed to clump up these three imperatives in such a way that they mutually interpret one another for us. So, so how do I draw near to God, verse 22? Well, well the author could have said, well, well, spend time reading your Bible, spend time praying. Those are absolutely good things and I highly encourage you to do them, yes and amen. But the author doesn't maximize on those things. Instead, instead he says, draw near to one another in the church. That's how you draw near to God. Hold fast your confession corporately as the people of God. That's how you draw near to God. What does it look like, verse 23, for us to hold fast our confession of faith, to not relinquish or surrender our faith in Jesus? Well, well, the author could have said, hunker down and turn inward and don't let anyone steal your faith out there. But instead, he says, turn outward, draw near to God and to his people, recall God's faithfulness together to his promises. Celebrate and sing about and remind yourselves of these things. That's where the author is directing us. You see, friends, the most tangible and real expression of how you and I draw near and hold fast to God himself is through his people in the local church, stirring up one another through mutual love and encouragement and sacrifice. In other words, if I could put it differently, perseverance is a corporate activity. It's, it's a team sport. It's not an individual event. We're all in it together. The author has in mind a vibrant community of Christians who are all living in close devotion to God, expressing that devotion by laying down their lives to spur one another on toward the finish line of their faith. That's what we are to persevere in doing, laying down our lives rather than taking them up. One of the hardest ultra marathons in the world is, is a 100 mile foot race in Colorado called the Leadville 100. And recently I watched a YouTube documentary of a guy who set out to accomplish it because I'm strange and these are my hobbies. And so around mile 62 of the race, after this guy had been running for 14 or 15 hours, one of his friends jumps into the race with him to keep him on pace to finish and to make sure that he made it through the overnight portion of the race, which is when most runners get lost or hallucinate from extreme exhaustion. Now in this documentary, I wanna read a quote to you from the friend who jumps in the race at mile 62. This stunned me, he said, quote, the most I had ever run in my life was 10 miles at a time, but I also knew I was going to do whatever I needed to for my friend. It was less about me and more about him. My number one focus was just to keep him awake, alert, motivated, and to get him through this. Now, this guy was not the star of the documentary. He wasn't even the one running 100 miles, but driven by the burden of his friend's perseverance, focused on his friend completing his race, 
This guy successfully ran with his friend all night for 25 miles further than he had ever gone himself. And then his friend proceeded to finish the race. See, perseverance gets lived out in the context of self-denial, not self-preservation. That's what the author is pointing us toward. That's what will carry us forward in the journey of this life as God's people. It's exactly what Jesus modeled for us and commanded for us in Luke 9, verses 23 through 25. And I quote, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Friends, it's in the context of self-denial, placing the needs of others above our own, investing the gospel outwardly. That's when the church embodies Jesus Christ in all his fullness to one another, and he becomes more real and more tangible and more palpable to each one of us. And it's in that context that we are reminded more fully of all that we possess in Christ. And that's what spurs each one of us on toward greater satisfaction in him. And each one of us is more fit to press on together than we are alone. That's what the author is aiming at. The church together in the work of embodying Jesus to one another by laying down our lives out of obedient faith so that we can all finish our race together. Now think about how this helps us persevere. Friends, doesn't this send us out of self-gratification and into self-denial, which embodies Jesus to one another? This moves us out of personal isolation and into personal involvement in one another's lives for the cause of Christ. It it, it mobilizes us out of self-preservation and into self-sacrifice for the welfare of God's people. In other words, we must not buy into the lie that we will find strength or joy or endurance by focusing more on our inward individual concerns or needs. But friends, perseverance comes not by looking inwardly and individually, but by looking outwardly and corporately. See, when a community of Christians is formed more by self-denial than self-preservation, more by the mission of Christ than their own personal agendas, that community of Christians, by definition, will persevere because they will be embodying and obeying the Lord Jesus. So here are some helpful diagnostic questions that I'd love for you to consider, and there's a number of them. Write them down if you find them helpful. Do you have a radar for people in your church or in your campus fellowship who are struggling and exhausted in their faith? That might require that you know some of the people in your fellowship or your church, get to know them a little bit more. Uh, Are you being driven more by self-denial or by self-preservation? Which one of those is actually exhausting you? Because they both can be exhausting. Self-preservation, I find in my life, is more exhausting than laying my life down to follow Jesus. He said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so if I'm exhausted in my faith, it's probably because I'm serving myself or something else, but not Jesus. 
Here's another diagnostic question. Are you experiencing the joy that comes from spending yourself for the gospel? Or or are you fueling your life by some alternate form of gratification? Are, Are you wholeheartedly committed to helping other people in their faith? Or are are you kind of looking for people to commit to you in your faith, but that's kind of where it ends? Are you paying the price to gather regularly with the people of God on campus and in your local church to be edified and to mutually encourage one another? Or is it possible that you might be overspending time on yourself and thus removing yourself from community with God's people? It's easy to drift into that and it's hard to persevere out of it. Are you creatively brainstorming ways to bless and serve and encourage and help and draw near to the people of God? Or are you sitting back and waiting for others to take the initiative with you? I think some of these are the questions that the author is bringing up for us. And so friends, let's have a radar for the brother in our midst who's wrestling with a passive faith right now, feeling as though the words of scripture have grown lifeless and cold to him. Could you imagine what might happen in his wrestling with a passive faith if we were to model for him what it looks like to actually believe and live out those words of scripture with zeal and passion for the Lord, to show him the way, to help him every step of his journey. Friends, let's have eyes to see our sister who's in the depths of suffering and despair this weekend, who might be wondering, have I been abandoned by God in my life? Imagine what might happen for her if she could experience God's presence and warmth once again through Christ-like sisters who sit with her in her sorrows and, and walk with her through them one step at a time. Let's consider those who are entrapped by their sin struggles, wishing they had the motivation to change, but, but struggling to stop submitting to their own fleshly desires. Friends, imagine what might happen for them if we were real life examples surrounding them, showing them the way to deny our fleshly impulses, to take our thoughts and desires captive to Christ and grow in holiness. Here's the invitation, friends. Remember what you have in Christ and persevere in what you do to embody Christ to one another. That's all under point one in our outline, that's the invitation the author has extended to us. And now much more briefly, we're gonna move through our our, our second point, which is the warning, Uh, the warning. Uh, You might've noticed that there's this weird warning passage right in the middle of our text. It kinda comes out of left field, and maybe you were wondering as I read, well, where the heck did that come from, right? That feels abrupt. Well, you can think the exhortation to persevere kind of as one exhortation in two forms, right? So there's the positive aspect of the exhortation to persevere, draw near to God, hold fast to God, but there's also the negative form of that exhortation, warning, don't fall away from God, don't give up on God, right? So it's one exhortation, persevere in two forms, draw near, don't fall away. So what are we we in the text being warned or exhorted away from? Well, the author says in verse 26, it's, it's that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Okay, well, what on earth does that mean, right? 
Well, further down in verse 29, the, the author says it's trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant by which we were sanctified, outraging the spirit of grace. Uh, we could think of it almost like a warning against jilting God at the altar, going back on our commitment to God. Even though he has already covenanted or committed himself to us in Christ, he has wedded himself to his people the word that we often use in, in Christian circles is, is apostasy. That's what the author is warning against. It's, it's a temporary commitment of faith in Jesus Christ rather than a lifelong commitment. It's, it's turning our back on God. The, the first readers knew men and women by name who had taken the easy way out of their persecutions and sufferings by deconverting from the Christian faith. And they themselves were tempted to follow suit. And so the author says, don't take the easy route. It won't end well. That's what the warning of our passage is addressing. And, and friends, if we can just acknowledge for a moment how troubling and weighty these things are. We are dealing with what awaits God's people if they should fail to persevere in their faith. And honestly, some degree of that fear is fitting for us to feel. But the author is not trying to corner you and I into a state of anxiety or uncertainty in our faith. Remember, he has already written in this very passage four times. He wants us to have confidence in our relationship with God. So then I want to ask the question, how does a warning help you and I persevere in our faith? How does a warning help us persevere? Now, let me draw your attention to an extended quote in your packets that has revolutionized and transformed the way I think about the warnings we find in Scripture. Now, theologian Tom Schreiner writes this. It's a longer quote. He says, The warnings and admonitions in Scripture call out to us, Danger! Do not fall away from the living God. If you deny Him, He will deny you. It's precisely by taking the warning seriously that we avoid eternal destruction. The label poison on a bottle seizes our attention and awakens us to the peril which awaits us if we should swallow its contents. So the warnings in the scriptures are also intended to arouse us from lethargy and propel us onward in the pathway of faith. They provoke a healthy fear so that we are not casual and relaxed about entering the heavenly rest. It's the same kind of fear which causes us to put on our seatbelts when we drive and which causes us to place railings where a fall would be deadly. Fear in these instances does not paralyze us, but actually contributes to our confidence when driving or climbing. Similarly, hearing and obeying the warnings in Scripture does not sap us of confidence and assurance. It is the pathway for full assurance in the faith. Here's what Tom Schreiner is saying. He's saying, if you and I want to grow in our perseverance and our assurance in the faith, we actually need the warnings of Scripture. Because it's in those warnings that our loving Heavenly Father clarifies the urgency of our present situation. He highlights the dangers and the severity and the seriousness of our own sin. And when we see those things and we have this kind of fear response in us, God uses that. He, he uses that to summon us forward 
into a greater expression of perseverance in Christ. That's how the warnings of scripture function. And so friends, this helps us persevere through the application of regaining a healthy fear of God. Uh, That's how we persevere. We need to regain a healthy, reverent, awestruck fear of our God. A perseverance is a posture of faith and fear. That the right emotional response to these things is this mysterious blend all at the same time of of confidence and trembling before our all-powerful God at the same time. That's what Christian perseverance looks like. It's, It's assurance that God will save me mixed with fear lest I should falter along the way. That's what Christian perseverance looks like. It's a certainty in the promises of God and his faithfulness to fulfill those promises, yet at the same time combined with a humble, fearful awareness of my sin which could pull me away. That's what Christian perseverance looks like. So for our brother or sister this weekend whose passion for the Lord has grown cold, please don't let the seeds of apathy blossom into abandonment. For any of you whose weariness in the faith has felt like an overwhelming weight to carry, please don't let the weariness you experience right now lead you to walk away. Look to Christ Consider him who was weary under the weight of his cross and yet carried it to Calvary for you. For those who have hit the wall with being rejected or treated unfairly for your faith and you're sick of it, please do not allow yourself to forget the pains which Christ took upon himself for you, which he did not deserve, which far outweigh what you're experiencing right now and look to him. Friends, here's where we've been so far. We've seen the invitation to remember what we have in Christ and to persevere in what we do to embody Christ. We've seen the warning about the dangers of a faltering faith, and finally, we will close by considering the promise, the promise, or rather, the three promises which our text ends on. They're they're printed in your packets there. There's a reward awaiting us. Christ is coming for us and others have gone before us. Let's take them one at a time. First, a reward is awaiting us. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. What carried them through this? Well, it says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
Many scholars and theologians believe that the author is referring to government-sponsored persecution of Christians under the Roman emperor Claudius, that, that these first readers had been displaced from their homes and opened up to regular public persecutions like arrest and torture, parading before Roman officials, and even death sentences, not for any real crime they had committed, but because of the popular prejudice that existed against Christians. They were facing a cost of discipleship higher than most of us will ever experience. And what enabled them to endure such unimaginable sufferings was the promise that awaited them on the other side of it all. You can take my earthly home from me because I've got an eternal home that you can't touch. You can plunder my possessions here and now, but that will not affect my inheritance in Christ. My life may fall apart around me, but I've got better promises ahead of me. You can hear the thoughts that enabled them to press on. And just what is the reward that they looked to that enabled them to persevere through their sufferings? Hebrews chapter four tells us it's the promise of eternal abiding rest in heaven with God. Friends, think of how that helps us persevere. It reminds us that we're in a situation that requires perseverance in this life, not because we've done anything wrong per se or because something is going wrong, but because that's exactly what it means to be the people of God. We're pilgrims in this world on a journey to our heavenly home, walking by faith, and we're not there yet. But there is a day fixed in the hidden counsel of our God when our faithful high priest will complete his work of saving us and we will arrive in our eternal home. And there, all of our sorrows, every last one of our ailments, Every affliction that you could ever face, everything that has ever troubled you will be put to rest in his presence, never to afflict you again. Friends, there's nothing we could endure in this life which Christ will fail to make up for in the next. That's the promise that we can press on with in mind. The promises of this life can carry us forward through the problems of this life. So let's set our eyes upon the reward of rest that awaits us. Second promise in our text that the author says we must hold fast to is that Christ is coming for us. Christ is coming for us. In verses 37 and 38, the author is kind of combining these references to Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk chapter 2. And he's grounding the need for, for endurance in the context of Christ's second coming. He's saying Christ is returning for us. Take another look, verse 37. Yet a little while and the coming one, that's Jesus, will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Here's another quote which we couldn't fit in your packets. It says this. Uh, this quotation stretch, stresses a posture of waiting and thus the need for living by faith. It anchors present posture toward God in the future hope of the coming one. The author is orienting endurance in the Christian faith in both the promises and the warnings associated with Christ's second coming. This helps us persevere as we lay hold of the promise and the warning of Christ's second coming. 
How does this help us persevere? Well, the promise of Christ's return is that our sufferings and our sorrows and slothfulness will end one day as he returns for us. But the warning, again, of Christ's return is that we must press on until that day. That's why the author said back in verse 25, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together all the more as you see the day, judgment day, drawing near. The author says, let us look ahead to that day and let us press on in light of it. The final promise which we ought to press on in light of, and this is where we close, is that others have gone before us. Our text ends with others who have gone before us. Verse 39, but we are not of those or from those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is a statement of our legacy, our lineage, our heritage. The writer is saying you come from a line of men and women, of those who have faith and have pressed on and have preserved their souls. See, the very next words that we read in the Bible are famously known as the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, which you simply must spend time reading and studying some other time. It is an entire chapter of the Bible dedicated to listing out men and women throughout redemptive history who endured the journey of the life of faith, which they had in the yet to be fulfilled promises of God. They reached the finish line. They ran the good race. Uh, you see, our, our culture loves new advances in human capabilities. Uh, a new world record, which we never thought possible. When that gets set, there's new ar- news articles and documentaries all about it. Now, when there's some cutting edge technological advancement, there's movies that we create about it, right? Or if someone accomplishes something for the first time in human history, it's, it's all over the news. It's all over television. We exalt these types of stories because we love to see that what we previously thought was impossible can actually be conquered. We make movies about these types of stories and celebrate them and exalt them. And friends, the reason the author brings this up, the reason this helps us persevere, is because he's saying the Christian life is a journey that can be conquered. It has been conquered by generation upon generation that has gone before us. Men and women have been navigating it by faith in Christ, and we can too. The author is saying, you're part of that grand generational narrative of endurance. You're cut from the same cloth as all the great heroes of the Bible. You're made of the same stuff as them. You have the same perseverance in you that they had, the same promises that await you that they had. And so set your eyes on the faithful men and women who have gone before you and go and do likewise. This is where the author finishes his exhortation. Brothers and sisters, as we close, one day our race will come to an end. We will reach the finish line of our lifelong commitment of obedient faith in Jesus Christ. We will enjoy everlasting communion with our God and the need for perseverance will end. And in those moments, it will have all been worthwhile. Until that day, until that day, consider the invitation to remember what you have and persevere in what you do. 
Heed the warning of a faltering faith. Fix your eyes on the promises ahead and press on. And press on. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that through this time, that you would use your word to exhort and challenge and spur each one of us on. Father, in the particular circumstances in which we find ourselves, would you give us exactly what we need? Would you surround us with men and women who can point us toward Christ and spur us on in our faith? Would you help us run the race with endurance? Would you help us to fix our eyes on Christ, to draw near to him, to hold fast to him? And Father, would you strengthen our brothers and sisters here to persevere? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.